How do you define a successful life? If your answer can be summarized as earthly excellence and sacred significance, you're at the right place. Join host Stephanie Smith as she shares three keys unlocking a life of lasting purpose. Learn yourself, love God, and live connected. You'll become smarter about yourself, skilled in human dynamics, savvy about the Christian faith, and strengthened to pass this wisdom on to upcoming generations. And now let's get started. Welcome back to Life's Key 3, where you are empowered to excel in life's three key endeavors, to learn yourself, to love God, and to live connected. We are continuing our study with the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament of the Bible, and we are almost at the end. We're getting ready to wrap up with this book next week. We have covered a lot of characters and a lot of different stories in our time together. Before we dive in, I want to give you a heads up. If you are the parent, caregiver, youth worker, mentor, or you just have adolescents in your life, children somewhere between the ages of 12 and 24, maybe you're a grandparent, and you would like to be able to know what in the world are they thinking? What is going on with them? I totally get it. Even though my kids are now grown, at one time, all five, yes, you heard me right, folks, all five were in the stage of adolescence at once. And I wish that I knew then so much of what I know now. And if you have an adolescent in your life or you have one coming up, you're going to want to know this information. I'm going to give you a sneak preview because in just a couple of days, I will be releasing a digital course about adolescence and specifically what happens in the physical brain during this life season of adolescence. It is phenomenal to understand this. It can make a profound difference in how you understand your adolescent and how you make decisions because you're going to be informed about how this physiological brain brain model, which is exactly what happens, changes behaviors and motivation and perceptions. If you are a subscriber to Highlights, the weekly newsletter, you're going to get a discount. As a matter of fact, you will get the best discount that will be offered on this course. So if you're not a subscriber, hop on over to the website, stephaniepresents.com and subscribe. The more that we understand the physical bodies that we inhabit, that God created every bit as much as he created our souls and our spirits, the more that we can live aligned with his truth in every other area. All right, let's get back to the book of 1 Samuel. In the last episode, we talked about Nabal and Abigail, and there were some powerful lessons there, specifically for relationships and for marriage. Today, we're going to continue to see some lessons that apply to not just our own decision-making, but also to our relationships and how we approach those and how we handle those. So before we jump to chapter 29, which is where we would normally pick up, I'm going to go back and cover a little bit of the chapters between the Nabal and Abigail story that turned into the Abigail and David story, because there's some rich content there. And we're not really going to be able to understand the significance of what happens in chapter 29 and the the couple of chapters that are remaining if we don't understand what's happened 
in the interim. All right, so let's jump in. Saul goes out with his army on another hunting expedition. Unfortunately, they are not hunting for real enemies. They are spending their time, wasting their time and their resources, chasing down David and his men. Why? For one reason and one reason only. Saul, who began his teen out of fear and insecurity, and has never dealt with that, has now transformed into a king who is incredibly jealous and will stop at nothing to take David's life. You see, that's the nature of sin. When we have one sin that we just keep hanging on to and we don't deal with it, it doesn't just stay there in some sort of neutral position like a pestering puppy. It grows into this magnetic monster that attracts all kinds of other sin with it. Saul's not just afraid and insecure anymore. Oh, make no mistake, he is still that. But he is also incredibly cruel, and he is going to waste his time and resources and the lives of so many other people fighting this fake enemy. So one night, David and his men are being pursued again. And Saul's army stops for the night, and they take a rest, and they go to sleep. And while this is happening, David says to a couple of his buddies, hey, guys, who wants to sneak down with me into the camp? And one of them says, yep, okay, let's go. Sounds like an adventure. Okay, well, I don't know if that's exactly what they said, but that's kind of what we get from Scripture. They steal into the camp. I don't know how many bodies they had to walk around or walk over to get to Saul. You would expect quite a few because he was the king, and you would expect that he wouldn't just be off sleeping by himself somewhere. They make their way over to Saul, and David takes Saul's water jar and his spear. I'm sure there's some sort of significance to the water jar. I just don't know what it is at this point. The spear is pretty clear. That's Saul's weapon. It's what he's wanted to kill David with. So, yeah, I think I'm going to pick up that weapon you've been trying to kill me with, and I am going to take it away from you. David and his friend get a safe distance away, and then David calls out to Saul's bodyguard. Don't mistake this. This isn't a childish prank or an adolescent taunt. This is a grown man who is hired. He is exhausted. He's alone. He's not able to live a normal life. Neither are the 600 men and their wives and children who have now become part of David's camp. David bears the weight of responsibility for leading all of these other people. And if you remember, when all these people signed up to follow David, the ones who came in the beginning weren't really the kind of people that you'd really hope would come around you. Remember, a lot of them were people who, well, let's just say they kind of had some sketchy reasons for showing up. But David has assumed responsibility for these people. And the fatigue of all these years and years and years of being on the run from Saul and having to move from one place to the other, you can just hear that in what he says to Abner. And even more importantly, how he responds to Saul. 
He's not just going, hey, Abner, guess what? We snuck in and you weren't doing your job. Yes, he does make some mocking of him. But again, this isn't just because he's looking for an adventure that night. He is wanting to put an end to a desperate situation. Well, Saul wakes up. And when he recognizes this was the second opportunity, David could have taken his life. No fight, no struggle, no bloodbath, one stroke. And it would have been off with his head, stop his heart, however David would have chosen to have done it. And Saul recognizes the vulnerability that he had been in and David's grace to him that he had done nothing to him. It wasn't just that David hadn't killed him. It was that David hadn't even scratched him. And what does Saul do? He acknowledges he's wrong. He says, I have sinned. He doesn't try to hide it or cover it up or anything like that. He says, I have sinned. But he doesn't just stop with an admission of wrongdoing. He also tells him, come home. Come on back. He extends an invitation to say, come on back to the proper place to your rightful place. And then he says, I will do you no harm. He promises David, you're safe now. I've learned my lesson. It's over. You can come back. We're going to be friends. All is well. All's forgiven. Let's move on. And then he praises David. He admits his wrongdoing. He invites David to come back home. He promises David, you are out of harm's way now. And he sings his praises. So let me ask you this. Why doesn't David say, woohoo, great, that's awesome. We've been waiting for this. Why doesn't he call all of his men, their wives, their children, who are just as tired of being vagabonds as he is, and say, all right, we all get to go home. Let's celebrate. Pack the camels, the horses, the donkeys. I don't know whatever animals they had. And let's get out of here. Finally, we get to go home. Why does David not do that? Because he knows that rebuilding trust requires more than an admission of wrongdoing, a promise of change, an invitation to reconnect, and singing his praises. You know, sometimes biblical forgiveness and restoration has been very mistaught and very misunderstood, and it's caused real harm and damage in people's lives. You see, forgiveness says, I'm not going to try to exact payment from you. If you've wronged me, then you you do owe something back to me. But forgiveness says, I'm not going to try to exact that from you. But that's a very different thing than saying, oh, and I'm going to loan you more money. If you lent somebody money and they stole it from you in the sense that they never paid it back to you and they knew that they should and, and they had the ability and they just didn't do it. Forgiveness would say, okay, I'm not going to sue you in court for that, but it wouldn't say, oh, here, let me write you another check. Does anybody write checks anymore? Okay, we'll update this. Let me send you something through Zelle or whatever. You see, forgiveness can happen without someone else's cooperation. You don't need someone else's cooperation in order to forgive them, but rebuilding trust, oh, that only happens with someone else's cooperation. You know, Stephen Covey in his book on trust writes about this, and and he makes this statement that says, you act your way out of trust. You act your way back into it. You don't act your way out of trust and then talk your way back into it. 
David is wise in knowing that Saul is talking here, but his actions are not lining up with his words. He's not refusing to forgive a repentant Saul. He just knows Saul is reacting to an immediate situation, but he's not responding to an innate change of heart. If someone else's so-called change of heart only happens in response to you confronting them or you putting them in a position of vulnerability, be very, very, very skeptical, my friend. That isn't being unforgiving. That's being wise to assess whether there has been genuine change that has occurred or it's just an admission of wrongdoing and everything else because you've been caught in a vulnerable place and you want to get out of it. And preferably you want to save face by getting out of it in a certain way. There's a saying in our society that's been around for quite a while that says, you know, admitting you have a problem is half the battle. I don't think that's true. I have never found that the struggles that I had in my life, that they were half over just because I said, hey, you know what, I need to work on this in my life. We can't treat admitting that we have a problem or that someone else admits that they have a problem as the same thing as owning that problem. Those are two entirely different things. Admitting we have a problem is not synonymous with owning we have a problem. What David does instead of packing up his camp and taking everybody home is he actually goes and lives in the land of Gath. Now, if Gath sounds familiar, it should, because remember Goliath? Yeah, the big giant that David killed all those years ago. Well, Goliath was from Gath. Gath was not a friendly nation to Israel. They were enemies. And what's interesting here is there is no record that David seeks God's guidance in making this decision to return to Gath. If it also sounds a little familiar, it's because it's the second time that he has run off to Gath because he's so tired of being chased by Saul. First time that David does this, it just appears that it's just David. There might have been a few fellows with him, but he certainly didn't have the band of men, women, and children that he comes with now. And so the king of Gath, Achish, gives him a city, a city called Ziklag. And David and his men end up living there for a total of about 16 months. And what happens during this time is something where we have to be very careful how we study the Bible. Just because the Bible records something doesn't mean that God is saying, I ordained that or that I approved of that, even if the person involved is somebody who was following God. Other than Jesus, nobody else in the Bible ever followed God perfectly. And I think that we see this here. We see this fatigue with David. He's tired. He's worn out. He's frustrated. This whole thing between him and Saul, this hasn't been going on for a couple of months. This has been going on for years. Sometimes we have this idea, I think, that David is anointed king by Samuel, and then it's a couple of weeks, or maybe it's like two years later, and then all of a sudden Saul dies in battle and David becomes king. That is not the timetable of this. This is a long period of time that David is on the run and cannot live a normal life for one reason and one reason only, and that is because Saul has chosen to continue to live his life out of 
fear and that fear that leads to rebellion and that fear that just continues to grow in its intensity. And we see this in what happens with Saul when he seeks out a spiritual medium. This was somebody that God had been incredibly clear in the Old Testament scriptures that these practices were absolutely not to be tolerated in the land. And if someone was going to continue these practices, that the death penalty was to be the consequence. Uh, That's a little serious, don't you think? And Saul, to his credit, had obeyed that part of God's instruction. He had made sure that the land was cleared of people who were going to engage in these evil practices. But he has now lived his life guided by so much fear, and he's getting ready to go into this major battle, and he's afraid. And so what does he do? He seeks out the very thing that he had stood against for so long. You know, somebody had come to Saul in the early days and would have said to him, hey, Saul, by the way, you know, so many years from now, you're going to be consulting with a spiritual medium to try to get a word from God because you're so desperate to hear from God. And you're going to spend years chasing David around, trying to wipe him out. Saul probably would have laughed in their face and said, I don't know what you're talking about. But that's exactly what happens. Now, there are some different interpretations on exactly who came up when this spiritual medium called for Samuel, which what Saul had requested. Some people say that Samuel really did come back from the dead, that God allowed that to happen. And it's evidenced by the fact that the medium was terrified that actually somebody had really come back up. And there's a lot of details that occur in this conversation that do give us credible reason to think that God had a divine intervention here and actually said, Samuel, you're going to go back and have one last conversation with Saul. Samuel is not happy about this, by the way. So why does that happen? I think it's a remarkable display of God's grace. The message isn't pleasant. It's, by the way, you and your son are going to die tomorrow in battle. But there's grace in that message because it gives Saul one last chance to get his heart right with God. Whether he did that or not, we don't really know. We do know that Saul's initial response to this is not to fall on his face before God and cry out in repentance. His response is to fall on the floor out of fear and refuse to eat or drink anything until his men surround him and kind of like, uh, <clears throat> Saul, uh, uh, we, we, we've got a battle waiting for us and you probably need to get up and eat and drink something because we're all counting on you to show up and tell us what to do here. And it's more his men than himself that gets him up and out to where he is supposed to be. Now, while this has gone on and while David and his men have been living in Gath, again, they they live there about 16 months. What happens is they go out on these raids against these smaller towns and villages, and they end up killing everyone who lives there because they don't want any message getting back to the king of Gath about what they're really doing. So basically, they got to cover their tracks. 
God is incredibly gracious to protect David and his men during this, but I don't think that grace of protection was the same thing as approving of what they were doing. And that's another lesson for us. I hope that we don't read that story and go, oh, well, you know, you you don't have to really seek for God's guidance as long as you mean well or as long as it's justifiable in your mind or it makes sense to you. Oh, God will let it go and, and everything. I don't think so. And I think that later in David's life, when he wants to build a temple for God, and God says, no, you're not going to get to be the one to do this because you have blood on your hands. And I don't think that's just because David engaged in battle. I think it's because that this was a time when David's battles were not commissioned by God. And even though the consequence of that did not come immediately, it did come. And the consequences of it certainly came for the people that were wiped out through these raids. Rather, I hope that the lesson that we learn here is the incredible importance of seeking for God's guidance with all of our decisions, especially our major decisions, and especially when we're tired and fatigued and exhausted and we've been dealing with something for a very long time. I think it's easy sometimes to think of David as as such a noble person that he just always sat down and prayed about things and he gave thought to everything and he sought God's guidance and counsel. And that's really not the David that we see so much in 1 Samuel. We see someone who's rather sporadic in his seeking out for God. We see someone who can be very reactionary, who can be driven very much by his emotions. You know, last week we saw somebody who was so angry and felt so disrespected, he's ready to go wipe out innocent lives. In these chapters, I think we see someone who is so discouraged He's tired, he's weary, he's had it, he's frustrated, it's not fair, this shouldn't be happening, and he takes matters in his own hands, and even though he and his men come away from these battles, the victors, there's no indication that God is pleased or giving his approval on all of these raids and the killings that are happening during these raids. We've got to be careful that when we are fatigued and tired and exhausted and we want to quit and it's not fair, and sometimes it is not fair, that we don't just run off into a foreign country, if you will, and I don't mean that literally, but that we don't decide in some way to align ourselves with the very enemies that we have been fighting all these years as a way to give us some sort of rest and reprieve. All right, well, that's going to wrap up for us today. And next week is when we are going to wrap up the entire book of 1 Samuel. And the following week, we are going to start in with an entirely new book. So again, if you haven't already, hop on over to the website, stephaniepresents.com, sign up for highlights, be looking for that information on when the adolescence course is going to release. That will be coming up very soon. I'm very excited to have that information available to help parents and caregivers and other people who are involved with young people between the ages of, oh, let's just say about 12 to 24. In the meantime, remember this, my friend, you have an impact that is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. Thank you for listening. 
For information on speaking engagements and other resources, visit the website at stephaniepresents.com. Remember, learn yourself, love God, and live connected. <laughs>